So Holy Spirit, ask that you would use those words to help us know you better. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are more of you here than I expected. So you either don't care about football or you have TiVo or whatever it is. Thank you for being here. It's great to have you here. Uh, Those of you who are watching on the podcast, catching up with the service that you missed, great to have you watch us as well. Uh, A couple months ago, I was invited to speak to the Boy Scout troop that meets here in our church. And I was supposed to talk about Christianity and a Muslim cleric was going to talk about Islam. And he went first, but he lost track of time. So when I got up, I had just like a few minutes to talk. So I just skipped everything that I had planned to say and just said to the boys, here's what Christianity is in a nutshell. And then I spoke for just a few minutes and I was fantastic. I mean, I really, I just nailed it. And, and, and these boys had this look of intense concentration on their face. And afterwards I asked, you know, are there any questions? And this one boy raised his hand and goes, yeah, what does in a nutshell mean? And I realized that that intense look of concentration was just them stuck on my first sentence. They hadn't got past it. They didn't hear a thing I said. So then I tried to explain what it meant. And then I started to think, what does that saying mean? I was kind of, what is in the nutshell, right? Well, that's why we're doing this sermon, uh, sermon series called Stuff Christians Say. Because if you hang out in Christian circles long enough, you start to hear these catchphrases and these cliches. And they're not bad, they're just incomplete. Or we're so used to them that we don't know what they mean anymore. And today I want to talk about the one that we probably hear the most. Jesus died for your sins. Preachers say it, Sunday school teachers say it, you hear it all over, and it's not wrong, it's, it's accurate, it's just incomplete. Because Jesus came to do so much more than just die for our sins. He came to launch a revolution, to bring his kingdom down here. To say the whole point of Jesus is that he died for our sins is like looking at Mount Rainier through a keyhole. It's just a fraction of what he came to do. And it's also just a fraction of what his death is all about. Because a whole lot more stuff is going on on the cross than just Jesus dying for our sins. A whole lot more stuff. And if we limit Jesus' work on the cross to just dying to pay the price for our sins, then, then that starts to get us into a life of sin management. Where we try to avoid sinning just so that we don't add to the price that Jesus paid. When I was a college pastor, one of the speakers I loved for my students to hear is named Tony Campolo. He's kind of bold, brash, often shocking preacher. And at one conference during the Q&A, a college student said, you know, my girlfriend and I are in love, so I think sex before marriage is just fine. And then Tony said, well, you know, the Bible's perspective is that sex is sacred and it's meant to be uh, not just giving our bodies, but our whole selves. And you can really only do that with someone who's promised never to leave you. That's called marriage. So far, so good. But then he went on and he said, besides, Jesus paid for that sin, so the next time you're having sex with your girlfriend, I hope you hear Jesus shrieking in agony from the cross, paying for your sin. Every pastor in the room just went, oh my goodness, right? Students were crying afterwards. There's all this pastoral care that had to be, I call it the Campolo effect, right? Brilliant preacher, you just need lots of people with the gift of mercy to clean up afterwards. But see, if the only thing that's going on on the cross is Jesus dying to pay for our sins. That's the kind of sin management life that we get into. But Jesus and the cross are about so much more. And over the years, there have been a lot of different theories about what uh, what Jesus did on the cross. The theological word for it is atonement, literally means at one minute. And I'm just going to touch on a few of those theories 
of what the cross is about. Just touch on them today. And just, just let you know, this is going to be a little more theological than I normally preach. I'm going to make you work just a little bit more today. And there's, it's kind of going to be a fire hose. There's going to be just a ton of points. Uh, so you just pay attention to the one that you like best. Um, and some will be longer and some will be shorter, but I don't want you to panic. You are still going to get out of this service probably by you know, right before halftime. So it'll be good. You'll be able to catch the game. I'm expecting to see people doing this while I preach, checking the score on their... And if I do that, just ignore me, okay? This matters. This stuff is really important to our lives because our lives will only be as big as our God is. And if we understand the cross more fully, then Jesus gets bigger, and so our lives get bigger and richer and better. The most common theory of the atonement is the one that I just mentioned, and it's usually called substitutionary atonement. Let me unpack this one before I move on to some of the others. And it goes like this. God is a God of justice, and that means he can't let sin go unpunished. By sin, the Bible means those things that we do that hurt, that are not God's best, that hurt us and hurt other people. And deep in all of us, there is a sense of justice that if someone does something to hurt someone else, a price needs to be paid. But God is also a God of mercy. And so the solution is he becomes one of us in Jesus and on the cross takes the punishment for our sins as our substitute. Now, there's some helpful things about this view of the cross. For one thing, it makes us take our sin more seriously, which increasingly as a culture, we don't do. Right? We think things to ourselves like, I'm not, I'm not sinful. I mean, I'm a good person. I'm not Hitler after all. Right? Aim high, right? That's a good, good goal there. You know, or I'm not sinful, I'm just morally suboptimal. Or I need to target holiness as a personal growth opportunity in 2013, but I'm not sinful. Or we blame our behavior on other people. A teacher told me about a student who was late to class because his father had taken him to breakfast but didn't get him back on time. So his mom wrote a note to the teacher, but she must not have been paying very much attention because she wrote, please excuse Johnny for being, it's his father's fault. Right? Blame it on dad, right? That's what we do, but, 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 uh, but, our, but the thing is our sin really hurts folks. Our gossip wrecks reputations. Our overconsumption has effects on the rest of the world. Our anger damages people's self-esteem and on and on and on. And the cross shows us that God is serious about our sin, deadly serious. And the price Jesus paid for it is high because the damage our sin does is high. And that's the bad news. But the other thing, the good news of this view of, of atonement, is it shows just how much we are loved and forgiven. That God put our sin on Jesus so now that we're free. And the way this makes our life bigger is it means a life free from shame. Because shame is a very powerful motivator. It causes us to hide from other people and even you know, not be honest with them and fearful that what are they going to do if they ever find out and all this stuff. But substitutionary atonement says we are free from shame. And we know that for sure because the price we intrinsically know needs to be paid, Jesus paid on the cross. And in a dramatic way, God wrote our forgiveness in red so that we would see it, so that we would get the point. Pastor John Ortberg tells a story of going down to Azusa Pacific because he had a child that was graduating from that college and his wife was speaking at commencement. And at one point they were in a room with about a 50, 50 alumni and graduating students and the president of APU brought these three students up who were graduating and about to go to India to help the poor. And uh, they thought they were just going to be up there to be commissioned or something like that. They had no idea what was coming. The president said, I've got a surprise for you. There's an anonymous donor who was so moved by what you're doing that he's given us an anonymous, anonymous gift. 
And so he turned to the first student who had no idea what was coming, and he said, so your debt of $100,000 is forgiven. And the student just started to cry. When I heard this story, I wanted to cry because I didn't know college could cost that much, and I got three kids. So. And then the president turned to the second student, and he said, you're forgiven your debt of 70000 And the third student, you're forgiven your debt of 100000 They had no idea what was coming, just ambushed by grace. This huge weight lifted from them. Afterwards, everyone was celebrating, and John was chatting with the president of the university, and John said, I had to resist the urge to say, you know, I have a daughter graduating this weekend too. Grace, huge debt, that's substitutionary atonement. Huge debt, this huge burden just lifted off of us, free of that debt, free of that guilt, free of that shame. That's one of the things that's going on at the cross, and it's good news. But wait, there's more. If you act now, because another thing that's going on at the cross is that it is about God showing us how much he loves us. He is willing to die for you to get you back. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. You are more sinful than you ever dared believe and you are more loved than you ever dared to hope. Which brings me to the next thing that is happening on the cross and that is the cross helps us become like Jesus. In two ways. First, Jesus didn't come to die. He actually came to show us how to live. And his life is what life in the fullness looks like. And we can emulate him. But deeper than that, his death also motivates us to become better people. And that, this is what is known, has been known as, by theologians as the moral influence theory of the atonement. The text we read today says that for Christ's love compels us that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. See, Christ's love compels us to be different, not to avoid punishment, but out of gratitude and in response to his love. And what that means for our lives is that we, as our text says, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, not just some people, but if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. This means that we become new people. Because you see, if, if, if the cross is just about Jesus died for my sin and it stops there, that's not enough. Because what about all the damage our sin has done to hurt folks? But see, we're not just forgiven. We become people who live like Jesus to repair the damage that sin causes. That's what the passage we read means when it says that God reconciled us to himself and through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're not just reconciled. We are reconcilers and healers. But that's not all. There's still more that's going on. Because not only that, the cross also shows us that God identifies with us, feels our pain. In the middle of his suffering, Job in the Bible asks God, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? In other words, do you know how hard it is to be human, God? And the cross, where God himself and the person of Jesus dies, means that God can answer, yes, yes, I know what it is to suffer, to be rejected. I know what it feels like to die. It's happened to me. The verse we read today says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And in a way, I think that verse can be read the other way around. Right? That, that at the cross, God wasn't just reconciling us to himself. He was also reconciling himself to us. That is, the cross just isn't just how God forgives us. It's how we can forgive God. Because it's God's way of showing us that he is not indifferent to our pain. That he's not like all the other gods and all the other religions that stays up there safe in heaven and watches us suffering like some kind of arrogant tyrant. But God joins us in our pain and suffers with us, which means we are not alone. 
But there's even more than that going on at the cross. Because if it stopped there, that would be comforting, but not encouraging. So another thing that has happened on the cross is God's judo. And here's what I mean by that. In judo, you take the enemy's force and turn it back on him to defeat him. And that's exactly what happens at Easter. Because at the cross, the devil threw his best punch, used his weapons of mass destruction, suffering, sin, shame, and death. It was sin that crucified Jesus, but he used that sin to purchase our forgiveness and eternal life. Turned it back on the enemy. I got an email a while back from a woman in our church who was divorced, single mom, uh, living in poverty. And she said, my circumstances, even though they were hard, they brought me closer to Christ. She was trying to survive in just a minimum wage job. And she said there were times when she would watch her kids eat, but there wasn't enough for her to eat. which was just terrifying. But through the church, she was able to find help, get into a, a food assistance program. Eventually, she said Jesus led her to a more, uh, higher paying job. And she said when it all started, at first she just was angry at God, saying, where are you? Why aren't you helping? And all of that. But gradually, as she went to church, read the Bible, she saw Jesus leading her to the help she needed, to the friends she needed, um, to, to people who could care for her, to a new job. And she said, I discovered that no matter what, I had a family called church and a hope and a love named Jesus. And now she helps others in need, telling them, hey, I made it out. You can make it out of this kind of poverty. She's involved in the crop walk, which helps get food for people. She ended her email by saying this, I will never forget the pain of feeling hungry, but I also can't forget that this journey filled me up more and brought me even closer to Jesus. God made certain that my journey would feed me and my family, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And my family and I continue to be filled with the love and support of the church family and the Holy Spirit. I don't have to be embarrassed or quiet about my circumstances anymore. I can shout to the Lord, thank you, we're doing so much better, thanks to Jesus. God took everything the enemy threw at her, poverty, divorce, loneliness, and used those very circumstances to help her find new life, new hope, new joy. That's judo. And what that means for our lives is that we are free, free from fear. There is nothing the devil can throw at us that will derail God's plans for us. God's going to use even the enemy's own weapons against him to bring us to a new hope, a new life, and a new joy. And this is a version of what theologians have called the ransom theory of the atonement. It was very popular in the Middle Ages. And it, 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 the idea was that, you know, that when we sinned, we sold our souls to the devil, and Jesus' life was the ransom that God paid to get us free. Now, nobody actually believes that, much, that one anymore, and even then it was kind of suspect. But a different version, altered version slightly, would be we are in bondage to a lot of things. Sin, fear, death, our own bad habits, and Jesus is our ransom and our rescue who sets us free. I heard a guy recently tell a story about how a while back two muggers came, put a gun in his face, and demanded all of his cash. And he said that, you know, he, he was, he, he's normally a very anxious person, but just miraculously in that moment, he felt this sense of calm, that even if they killed him, he would still go on to live with Jesus eternally. So he said to them, I want you to know that even if you kill me, I forgive you. And they didn't say anything. They were just blank. And so he got in their face and he said, no, I just said something. I want you to acknowledge you just heard what I said. So they said, yeah, we heard. And the, now the muggers were starting to look a little afraid, right? And so they took all of his money out of the ATM machine that he had, even took his laptop. But he said, even then I had peace. And all I could think was, I hope they go through my laptop because it has tons of Christian material on it. That's all I could think. That's the power of the cross. 
Because not even death stopped Jesus, it means death can't stop us either because the grave can't hold us. And that's the hope we have. In fact, that's the only hope we have. It, And we say it every year at Easter. We, are, we have our hope. Our only hope is that Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. That's the only one we've got. You know, for 2,000 years, people have not gathered together to say, you know, the stock market has risen. It has risen indeed. Or my 401k has risen because it hasn't. The only hope that has sustained people throughout centuries of poverty and hardship and disappointment and pain is that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's what the cross shows us. But not only that, there's still even more. Because not only is he risen, not only does he do his judo, but he is at work making all things new. And that's another thing the cross shows us. On the cross, Jesus is ushering in the new kingdom of God, undoing the effects of the fall. One of our interns, Josh Gritter, pointed out this week to me that when Jesus is arrested, he's in a garden. He's buried in a garden. When he's raised from the dead, he's mistaken for a gardener. Garden. Anything else happen in a garden in the Bible? The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the fall. The cross isn't just for our sins or to show us how much we're loved or influence us to be different or show us that nothing can stop us. It's ultimately God making this earth more like his heaven, undoing the effects of the fall, ushering in a new reality. In fact, that's what God Jesus killed, that he was challenging the status quo. Nobody gets crucified just for being a nice guy. We kind of reduce Jesus down to this nice guy, but nobody gets crucified for that. Nobody said, oh, he's so nice, let's crucify him. No, he said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The most important thing isn't Caesar, it's God. He challenged the vengeance-seeking of the political zealots of his day. He put lowly fishermen in charge of spreading his kingdom rather than the well-credentialed, seminary-educated religious leaders. That's the kind of thing that can get you killed, and it did. But it's also the kind of thing that it can bring new life, which is what his resurrection did. The cross shows us the way things are are not the way things have to be. There's more to life than pleasure, comfort, success. We don't, have to, we don't have to be in shame anymore. We can be brave, not timid, adventurous rather than merely entertained. And yes, in order for that new reality comes, some sins, some addictions, some mindsets are going to have to die, but they will be followed by new life. So here's the application point for the sermon this week. What part of Jesus' death do you most need to connect to? Is it the forgiveness and freedom from shame Is it how much he loves you and let that influence you? Is it to experience, even if you don't believe it, God's Easter judo that takes the worst thing and can bring good out of it? This week, ask Jesus to help you connect with that aspect of his death and resurrection you most need to experience so that it's more than just a cliche, more than just a catchphrase for you. It can become your new reality. You know, ultimately, the cross is a total mystery. How does Jesus' death forgive me? Why did God pick this way, not some other way? It's a mystery. We're never going to fully understand it other than it's the way God chose. But maybe the reason he chose it is because more than any other thing, what, what the cross really shows is the full heart and the full character of God. What is God like? What is God really like? The cross has said it all. He is the loving Father who will stop at nothing to bring us back home to him. He is the God who turns death into life. He is the God who, when the soldiers maimed him and the crowds mocked him, he blessed them. 
He's the God who is willing to die for dirty, rotten scoundrels like you and like me with no promise that they'd ever stop being dirty, rotten scoundrels. The cross shows us just how far God was willing to stoop, how much pain he was willing to bear, how despised, rejected, and abused God was willing to become just to reach you and just to reach me. There is no other God like this. And on the cross, we can hear Jesus saying, there is nothing that you have done. There is nothing that you could ever do that would outrun my love for you and that I can't touch, heal, redeem, and restore because all the sins we've sinned and all the sins that have been sinned against us, all the hardships we have, all the, all the suffering we endure, the disappointments we've experienced, all of those things were driven into the hands of a righteous man by a brutal Roman nail and put to death with him. And when he rose, he rose with nothing but blessing in his hand and those wounds. Those wounds that say no matter how wounded you get, there is new life coming. Jesus died for my sins and so much more. So Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you for the gift you have given us. And Lord, ask that you would help us to connect with that part of your death and resurrection that we most need. For every person in this room, God, for the people watching online, Lord, would you please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, reach us with your love and your good news and that part of your death that we most need to experience. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.